Well, kinfolk, happy Sunday. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee, our guide and destination. Amen. I'd forgotten that there was a mulberry tree in today's reading, and it caught me a little, little off guard because just last week I had to cut up a, a, a huge mulberry tree fell down at my uncle's farm, and I had to go chop it up. And if you've never cut up a mulberry tree, it is definitely not something that you want to go after. Uh, it is extremely hard wood. Uh, but there it is, there in today's reading. Faith is the subject of this uh, reading, and Jesus is uncharacteristically sharp with his disciples today. Increase our faith, they ask. Very few people ask this today, praying for faith. Today we tend to treat faith as something you either have or don't have. We turn faith into an us versus them sort of thing, as we're fond of doing, and many things. And in doing that, I think that we give a bad rap to our brothers and sisters who have no faith, uh, or those who are atheists. I think atheists get a bad rap in this country. You can, you can put that... He put that in the newspaper. That Christian preacher claims that atheists get a bad rap. Uh, I've never been uh, attacked or assaulted by uh, an atheist, either verbally or physically. Um, I've had Christians do both to me. I got, uh, on one memorable occasion, I got uh, attacked by uh, some Christians in the Holy Land uh, for worshiping with some people who weren't Christians. I got to be in Time Magazine for that one. Uh, but yeah, atheists get a bad rap. And every few years, the Gallup polling people do a survey. And they ask people this question. Would you vote for a presidential candidate who is fill in the blank? And they fill in the blank with a lot of different things. In the blank, they put all sorts of things. First, they usually ask, would you vote for a president, uh, presidential candidate who is a Catholic? Uh, I know that some of you remember that being kind of a big deal. John F. Kennedy was running for president. And there are many people who wouldn't vote for a Roman Catholic to be president. Today, that's not really a big deal. Would you vote for a person of color, a minority, a gay person? Would you vote for an evangelical Christian, etc.? And they go down the list and they figure out there are two categories of people that Americans, for whatever reason, are least likely to vote for. This is in the current climate. Second to last is a socialist. And I think that that's why the word socialist gets used so much. Because not a lot of people really know what that means. They just know it's like kind of a bad thing. Uh, so they just call each other socialists and then it sort of loses all meaning. But below socialist is an atheist. Now, for the first time this year, atheists jumped above socialists. So I guess people are really heated up about this socialist business. We should probably get to the root of what that word actually means at some point. Record 60% of Americans would be willing to vote for an atheist. This is compared to socialists at 47%. Now just above atheist is a person, uh, is, a, uh, a, is a Muslim person, a Muslim person, which I think is fascinating as well. And I think that someday, perhaps 100 years from now, it will be as fascinating to us that Americans wouldn't vote for a Muslim as it would be that they wouldn't vote for a Roman Catholic in the time of John F. Kennedy. All of these categories kind of are a bad reflection 
on our body politic. There's no rational reason to refuse to vote for somebody based on these characteristics. But it's interesting information, and it's interesting to think about. So I think about atheists frequently. There's uh, a lot of famous stories uh, throughout the history of the church, and I'll share a few with you today about the relationship between people of faith and people of no faith. There's one told by the great rabbi Levi Yitzhak. He was once in his shtetl confronted by a very bold atheist, loudly decrying all of the horrible, nasty traits of the cruel and uncaring God of heaven. And rabbi Yitzhak famously replied to him, you know, I also don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. Another way I've heard it put by one of my very best friends and a man who is married to a person of faith but is himself an atheist and they make that work well, um, the way he is fond of putting it is, uh, Nathan, we're not so far apart, you know. I simply believe in one less God than you. At the root of this issue, I heard it put beautifully by somebody who I almost always disagree with, but on this account he is correct, I think Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, a Roman Catholic, was asked the simple question, why do you personally believe in God? When he gave his answer, it struck my heart. It's a little complicated, but he summarized this very difficult to describe foundation of my own faith he said, because I think it's impossible to explain a contingent state of affairs, a material world, I'll see, without appealing finally to a non-contingent reality. In other words, the evidence he needs is that there is anything at all. There must be something. I love this. But it's a preference and not a commandment. Jesus is asked by his disciples today in Luke, increase our faith. Would that be the only prayer that a Christian ever prayed to God is increase my faith? I think we'd be much more humble people. Probably be good for us. And he seems to get a little angry today. This is very unlike uh, Luke, Jesus. Like Matthew and Mark, Jesus, like, yeah, Jesus is very grumpy. And Mark, and Mark, he seems to be mostly like wanting to be left alone and people are pestering him. In Matthew, he seems more frustrated that people are simply unable to follow their own religious beliefs. But in Luke, he's typically very kind of just chill and goes with the flow. Um, but today, he gets a little grumpy. Uh, and he kind of insults them a little bit. Or maybe he's making a joke. But he says, look, increase our faith. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell this tree to go soak its head in the ocean. And it'd listen to you. Get over yourselves. Do the stuff I'm teaching you to do. Do you think you thank a servant for doing what's commanded of them? No, just do your darn job. I'm paraphrasing Jesus here. The disciples have the benefit of the master. They have the incredible gift and blessing of being told how they ought to live and what the best way to live is. Now, well, perhaps the atheist does not, but so often does this right because of their own innate sense of morality. I'm going to share a rather lengthy Martin Buber story. It's a quote that Buber is fond of telling. Of course, one of the greatest uh, Christian thinkers uh, uh, the last two centuries. His quotes are long because he's very precise with his language. And I try as I might, I can't reduce the length of this story without totally messing it up. Buber writes and tells this story. The master teaches... <clears throat> 
the student, that God created everything in the world to be appreciated. Everything in the world is here to teach us a lesson. So one clever student asks, what lesson can we learn from atheists? Why did God create them? The master responds, God created atheists to teach us the most important lesson of them all, the lesson of true compassion. You see, when an atheist performs an act of charity, visits someone who is sick, helps someone in need, and cares for the world, he's not doing so because of some religious teaching. He does not believe that God commanded him to perform this act. In fact, he does not believe in God at all. So his acts are based only on an inner sense of morality. And look at the kindness he can bestow upon others simply because he feels it to be right. This means, the master continued, that when someone reaches out to you for help, you should never say, I pray that God will help you. Instead, for the moment, you should become like the atheist and imagine there is no God who can help and say, I will help you. Well, <coughs> excuse me, when I was a boy, I worked really hard around our homestead. I mean, at least in my estimation, I worked hard. I mean, some of you grew up in the Great Depression, so I don't want to like <laughs> over like sell this, but I think I worked pretty hard. We heated our home with a wood-burning furnace. And every night, the furnace would run out of wood, and an alarm would go off, either in my room or my brother's room, and we would get up out of bed and go down the three flights of stairs into the basement and fill the furnace back up so that the house would be warm when we woke up. And I used to ask my dad for an allowance, because other kids had an allowance. And he said, get a job. I get really frustrated because I had a lot of work to do around the house anyway, and I thought maybe I should get paid for doing the work he was making me do. And if, in a moment of temerity, I'd pipe up about this, he would say, do you enjoy having a place to live? Or his favorite was to say, you don't get rewarded for doing what's expected. He pulled this one out when I got good grades and wanted to get a reward. The reward was that I didn't get punished for having bad grades. This was all a very lovely introduction to Calvinism. <coughs> a lack of faith is not really the problem in the case of the disciples today. It's a lack of action. This is how we've gotten our religion so screwed up and backward in this country. We've mangled Luther's theology to the point where we believe that simply having a personal faith in Jesus is all that God wants from us. It's very pleasing to God, and that's literally all that's necessary to inherit a life for the ages. It's not even the servant who, after coming in from the fields, expects to be wined and dined by his master. It's even worse. It's like a complete stranger from across the street randomly showing up at the master's door saying, I never worked a day in my life on your garden, but I believed in you. Now where's my place at the table? And Jesus says exactly what becomes of this. He says later, go away. I never knew you. 
The work is the reward. That's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples today. That's what my father, I think, wanted me to understand. That's often what atheists know without being told. Compassion is work. Compassion is hard work. Empathy is work. Serving those who are being crushed under life's heavy load is work. But it is very rewarding work. Do good for its own sake, and I promise you'll know a good life. I'll close, a thing, I'll close with a thing that has puzzled me since I began my faith journey. Now, I don't think, personally, I don't believe, and I said this last week, I don't think that God throws people into hell for eternity. It doesn't line up with the God I know, and uh, very does not uh, line up with the stuff that's in this book. But sometimes people get really worked up when I say this. And they take umbrage because it's not fair. They say it's not fair that bad people don't burn in hell. Now this all despite the fact that there aren't really, don't get this sideways. And we're heading into November, which is a very silly season in this country, politically speaking. We get it sideways when we think there are good people and bad people. There are just people. Um, but... Uh, all of us have good and bad within us. Anyway, but they say it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. I was good. They were bad. I get pie in the sky when I die. It's not fair if they also get pie. <laughs> and I'm suspicious of these folks because kind of what they're admitting is, and you can ask yourself this, if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was no hell, would you suddenly become a nasty and cruel person? hurting others and stealing and committing heinous acts? No, because being cruel to other people hurts. It hurts. It w it's toxic. It hurts the soul. It hurts the heart. It weakens the will. When you imagine a cruel person, really even a cruel person who is incredibly powerful, or a cruel person who has very, very wealthy and can purchase anything they want or whatever, would you trade places with them? Would you trade your life for theirs? Would you trade a day of your life with theirs, knowing the toxic burden that would come with it? No, because deep down, we truly are created in the image of God. Deep down, we know that moral and ethical behavior, equity, generosity of spirit, this is, even though we don't always do it, even though we sometimes fall far, far short of the mark, we know deep down that this is the work of being a human and becoming a human being, not just a human doing, but a human being. Our faith and this thing that we do here, these practices that we have, the prayers that we pray and the sacraments that have been given to us by Jesus Christ. This is not meant to serve as some kind of a reward or, God forbid, as fire insurance, but rather it's a way of making sense of this life. It gives us direction. Its practice makes us healthier and stronger, more hopeful, happier human beings. and gives us a practice in the first place. We are and continue to be the body of Jesus Christ in the work in the world for its healing and salvation. Today is World Communion Sunday. 
It is a good day to reflect on the work of faith, sown like a garden that now covers the entire world. Now that that garden of this way, the way of Jesus, is all around the world, we may, may only need pray that it comes to fruition. Take heart. Take heart in the knowledge that today the church of Jesus Christ and the remnants of those same disciples asking that same question, increase our faith, take heart in the knowledge that all of us are hard at work on behalf of the kingdom of God that is here and is arriving. And that our work is deeply pleasing to our creator. Amen. Amen. Amen.